the book of Revelation, chapter 1. And there in verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming. Guys, the Lord is coming. In Matthew 24, verse 42, it says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. He can come anytime. Now, for some of you, you're going, oh, no, I hate when they talk about that. You know, you hear the stories where the kid comes home from high school and, you know, the front door is wide open and the TV and the radio's on and there's a pile of clothes on the floor and mom, dad, you know, mom, dad, oh, you know, they're outside working in the garden and he's freaking out going, oh, 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 you know, I thought the rapture had come and left behind. What's the front door doing open? And, you know. Well, you don't want to live like that. That's a miserable way to live. You want to know that you're right with God. You want to know that your life is submitted to God. In Thessalonians, when it says, talks about the end of the, end of the times and the Lord's coming and the rapture, it says, comfort one another with these words. The idea is the Lord's coming back. We're like, oh, right, I can't wait. In John 14, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have not told you. I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. There it is. I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And that's God's desire. Is that where he is in heaven you also would be with him. And he comes. And so to you Christians who are hanging in there, hanging there a little longer, don't grow weary in well-doing. Behold, he's coming. And it says right here that he's coming with the clouds. Now, there's a number of ways of looking at this. I I think it's a direct quote out of Daniel 7, there in verse 13, where he says, I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, and all the people and nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And so there's a picture of the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And and I think that's a, a pretty clear picture in Matthew 6 when Jesus stood before the council who was condemning him, getting ready to crucify him. They said, tell us plainly. And Jesus said to him, is it as it is as you say, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so in Daniel and there in Matthew, Jesus makes it clear that he's coming and and coming as he ascends with the clouds. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus there was being received up on the Mount of Olivet out of their sight in through the clouds. And the angel stood by and, and said, what are you looking at? And then he said there in Acts 1, the same Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so literally, he's coming with the clouds. But also, in Hebrews chapter 12, 
after it just got through talking of chapter 11 about all of the, the great saints of old, he said, now having this cloud of witnesses. So the believers were talked about as the clouds. And we also know later on that's true. When the Lord comes, we're going to be coming with him, the great cloud of witnesses. He's coming in the clouds. That's with us. Also in the Old Testament, for example, in Exodus 13, uh, 16, 19, 24, this picture of the clouds of God's presence, and in the Hebrew, it's the word Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God. And uh, it's also a picture of the cloud, and we see that various occasions through the Old Testament. So again, the clouds referring to his glory and his power and his majesty. And I believe all, all is true. He's coming in his power and his glory, his majesty. He's also coming with a great cloud of witnesses, us believers. And he's also literally coming in through the clouds as he ascends back into heaven and lands there on the Mount of Olives. And it says, every eye will see him. <clears throat> now, this is not referring to the rapture. Because when all the believers snatched away, it's only the believers that, that see him are changed into their new bodies. But at the second coming of Christ, the end of the tribulation period, you can read about it in Daniel 12. It gives you the exact day when the Lord's going to come. There's a seven-year tribulation period in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period, three and a half years into it. The Antichrist proclaims himself to be God. The Jews' eyes are open that he's not the Messiah as they had hoped. It's actually uh, this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness. And uh, in Daniel it says, start counting the days. There's exactly three and a half years left, and the Lord will be coming back. And when the Lord comes back, every eye shall see him. In Matthew 24, verse 26 and 27, Jesus said, when they say to you, look, he's in the desert, go out there. He's in the inner room. Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. I don't know how the Lord's going to do it, But every single person on the planet who's alive, when the Lord comes, they're going to see him as he ascends through the clouds, with the clouds, in the glory of the Lord unto this planet. And it says, and even they who pierced him. Now, this is a clear reference to the Jews. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour on, look, the house of David. Clearly referring to the Jews and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they've pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. And so finally, the Jews are going to see Jesus, their Messiah, the one whom they pierced. Now, we need we know the whole story around it, and it's actually not tears of regret, but tears of joy. Because in that three and a half year period, when their eyes are open, this isn't the Messiah, this is a false Messiah. As you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, it tells us that all of Israel will be saved. So what takes place at that moment, their eyes are opened, and they do receive the Messiah. Now, some of them are slaughtered like another holocaust by the Antichrist. Some are killed in the cataclysmic events that are happening around the world. And some of them make it into the country of Jordan to a rock city called Petra, where they're protected by the hand of God for that last three, three and a half year period. But 
At the end of that tribulation period, they're all led out of Petra. The people from the world are alive are going to come, and they're going to come to Jerusalem, and there they're going to see him. And then they're going to weep with great tears of joy. Some regret that they hadn't received him. For thousands of years, they were without a Messiah when they could have had a Savior, when they could have had a Messiah. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. God wishes all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth, but not all men will repent of their sins, humble themselves of their pride, and come unto Christ to receive him. And so thus they're not chosen because they don't come to Christ and repent. And not only that, but there's others on the planet who are going to mourn. It tells us in Matthew 24, verse 29 and 31, that not just the Jews who pierced him are going to mourn, as it says in Zechariah, but all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. It says there in Revelation and also in Matthew 24, verse 29 to 31, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the sun will fall from... Uh, fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven and the power and great glory. So many people on the planet are going to be weeping, saying, it really is true. He really is Lord. He really is Messiah, and I didn't receive him. I took the mark of the beast, 666, on the back of my hand and my forehead. There's no hope for me now. There'll be many others who are weeping because of relief. I didn't take the mark. And I've been going through these cataclysmic events and, and, and resisting the Antichrist and, and this whole demonic power. And, oh, relief, finally, the tribulation's over and the Lord has come to set up his millennial reign upon the earth and to save us. And then in verse 8, it says, or excuse me, there in verse, end of verse 7, it says, even so a man. Guys, it's the truth. Whether you want to believe it or not, it's the truth. People sometimes say, well, I don't want to believe Jesus is Lord. <laughs> he is, whether you like it or not. Or you hear people say, well, I don't believe in a hell. It doesn't mean it's gonna not, there's not going to be a hell and you're not going to go there. Okay, the fact of the matter is, is the truth is the truth. The doctor says, you've got cancer. Well, I don't want to believe I have cancer. Well, you, you got it whether you like it or not. In the same way, Christ is who he is. The Bible is 100% true. Every bit of it, it's so, even as the Lord has said, it is so. And amen? Amen. 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 So be it, Lord. Absolutely, that's the case. And in verse 8, Alpha, he says there, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last last letter of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. Who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. So he is the beginning, he is the end, he is eternal. Remember Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and then it goes on and says he's the everlasting father. Not that they're calling Jesus there the father, but he's the one who gave birth, if you would, to eternity. It's not possible to start eternity, it's always been. And this is what it's saying. He's always been eternal. And in Micah 5, 2, it says, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. In Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is same yesterday, today, and forever. And I love this term. He's the Almighty. We're going to get to Revelation 15, 3. And all of heaven, the angels, and everybody there begin to sing to the Lamb. And they say, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God 
Almighty. Forty-eight times in the Old Testament, the Lord is called the Almighty. The very first time is in Genesis 17, when Abraham's 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the Lord, or I am Almighty God. And he bowed, and he worshipped, and the Lord began to speak to him. In Isaiah 9, 6, again it says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Eight times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the Mighty God, because he indeed is. In Revelation 1, 9, he says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I love John here. The great apostle John says, I'm just your brother. It really bothers me how people try to set up titles, you know. I'm reverend so-and-so or bishop so-and-so or whatever. But you don't see that in the scriptures. John just says, hey, I'm just regular old John, just your brother John. We see that of Jesus. I mean, if anybody is to be called the most holy, reverend, awesome, you know, it would be him. But Jesus says, when you come to me, just say, Jesus, Joshua, Jesus, Yahshua. I mean, if anybody's going to have a title, wouldn't it be Jesus? I mean, if the Lord commanded you to take five minutes saying, God, Savior, Lord, Almighty, King of Kings, Lord, and to go on and on and on and say, okay, now you can talk to me. That would make sense. Because he is worthy of every awesome title there is. But he just says, call me Jesus. Let's be informal about this. So how much more we, the leaders of the church, should just be brother so-and-so and and not some reverend or, or bishop or whatever it might be. And he says, a companion in tribulation. I'm going through it just like you guys are. Indeed he was. The island of Patmos was a very dingy place. It was a difficult place. You read about the what the historians say about it. Uh, they, they talk about it being one of the most dismal places on, on planet Earth. Um, it was a rocky, desolate island, 10 miles long and 6 miles wide. It's lonely, desolate, barren, uninhabited, seldom visited. But it did have incredible marble deposits. And so what they had made out of it was a slave or a prisoner island where people literally worked themselves to death, mining for the marble that was there. And the historians tell us that John was no exception, even though he was an old man in his 90s, possibly over 100, that he was treated just like any of the other slaves or prisoners, and that he was sentenced to death on the island of Patmos, mining in the mines the marble. So incredibly difficult, hard labor for such an old man. But even though he was... a Going through it, notice in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Here's John, old, tired, weary, on this very depressing place. But yet, he says, it's the Lord's day, time to worship. Boy, you know, if you want to find an excuse to not worship, you'll find one. But if you want an excuse to do it, you'll find one. John could have found any excuse in the book to not observe a day in which to worship the Lord. 
But he said, no way. Even in the midst of this devilish island here in the very hot area right off of Asia Minor, off the coast there, we're going to find a day and we're going to worship the Lord. And they had a day and the Lord's Day. I believe it was Sunday. In Acts 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, he gives reference again to that. On the first day of the week, let each one of you. And he goes on. I think the Christians began to worship on Sunday, the day the Lord raised again from the dead. The Jews worshiped on Saturday. There's some people that say, Oh, you, the Bible says plainly you've got to worship on Saturday. No, it doesn't, guys. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says rest on the seventh day. And I don't know about you, but coming to church and fellowship with the believers and worship, it's, it's often a lot of work. You've got to fight about 300,000 demons on the way here because Satan doesn't want you here. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but I often say, how many of you guys fought on the way to church? And boy, you know, you'd be amazed. He's throwing his little fiery darts at your marriage, at your kids, at your neighbors, the guy driving next to you. It's amazing how he's trying to get you so hot and bothered and flustered that you can't be in the spirit on the Lord's day. For a lot of people, they they do a lot of work. We have people that get here in the wee hours of the morning to get the food ready and get the rooms ready. And a lot of Sunday school teachers and ushers and greeters that come to to help out and to serve. And it's it's not a day of rest. (laughs) It's a day of work. I think it's a good idea to get, get a day of rest from Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown or whatever day you choose. But uh, Jesus didn't do it. He said, my father works till now and I also work. I think of that one picture in the Sea of Galilee, the boat was filling up with water and sinking and Jesus was still fast asleep. He really wore himself out in service and in ministry. But I love the fact that here's John broken in body, beaten down, Domitian persecuting him by putting him on this desolate island. But yet, when the Lord's day comes, he doesn't forsake the gathering together of the brethren, and he's in the spirit. Guys, I encourage you, come early. Fellowship, look at the bookstore. But as soon as you can, come in here, sit down, read your Bibles, pray, meditate, prepare your heart to be in the spirit. Don't just come to church and you know, like you go to 7-Eleven trying to get in and get out. Don't come like a movie theater and plop down and say, serve me. You know, give to me. Entertain me. Come with the right attitude. We come to link up with the Lord, with one another. We come to wash each other's feet. We come to serve each other, to give of ourselves to each other. That is what's supposed to be going on. And then it's a beautiful thing. But John came, and I I don't know how he did it, but he made that day, and, and he, through meditation, through prayer, through just quoting scriptures in his heart, he came to the place where he was in communion with God. And as he was in communion with God, as always, the Lord begins to speak. And it says there, and I heard him behind me with a loud voice. This concept of hearing him behind me is actually, it's a term that we get out of Isaiah 30, verse 21, where the Lord says, I'll wait on you so I can be gracious to you till you're in the right frame of heart and mind, till you're in the spirit, if you would. And then he says, and then your ear shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And so it's sort of like 
once you've submitted yourself into the Lord, now the Lord takes the reins of your life and he can now very easily direct you and begin to speak to you. So John's in the spirit and he hears the voice of the Lord. It's loud. It's clear. So often you hear people say, I think I heard what the Lord said. I turned to his channel and heard a lot of static and I listen and, you know, through the static and all the fuzziness, I could hear, I think this is what the Lord said. No. Man, when the Lord speaks, it's loud, it's clear. Notice here, it's like a trumpet. A very clear blast and you wake up. You go to war. Charge. It's, It's very distinct. The Lord spoke. And that's what God wants every time. When we come together as a church... God wants you to be in the spirit on the Lord's day. And God wants to speak to you radically. And he speaks to John and he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, Asia Minor to us today, to Ephesus, Myrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Again, it's very clear. It's a very clear message. It wasn't fuzzy. You know, you hear people try to quote the prophecies of Notre Dame or whatever. And, oh, man, it's an awesome. Every time I look at those things or they come up with some other demonic type of thing, it's always weird. It's like, first it's dark and then the light. It's hard and then it's soft. And then once it's up and down, then you will know. And it's like, whoa, it's just so clear. 911 right there. Can't you see that? He prophesied. And it's like. I have no idea what you're talking about. When God speaks, it's not some mystery, and it's clear. It's me, the eternal one. And I come, and I have a message. And John, it's not just for you, but after I give it to you, I want you to write it down and get it out. In particular, I have seven churches. I have a specific message for each of them. And I believe that is the case always. We've come together, and God has a specific message for us as well, as a congregation. That's why I love Sunday nights. You know, we come together, we're studying Leviticus right now. Not a book you'd casually study on your own. (laughs) You know, it's the very first book that a young Jewish boy begins to study. But yet it's often the last book, if ever, the book that Christians study. But it's rich in the message of Christ. And then afterwards, what I love is we spend time in prayer as a church, seeking the Lord, hearing from the Lord, receiving from the Lord. In words of knowledge, words of wisdom, prophecies, God just radically speaks. He has a message for us. And we need to be ready. We need to be there. We need to be listening. I love the fact that he says, I'm the first and the last. In Isaiah 41, verse 4. He says, who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, or Yahweh, or the Jehovah Witnesses say Jehovah, am the first, and with the last, I am he. And then in Isaiah 44, verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, besides me, There is no God. So Jesus telling John, I'm the first and the last, is a clear statement that I am the Lord, that I am the God who's coming to speak to you. And what is filling you up, the revelation that's going to fill you, write it down because it's also for others. Guys, that's the case. In Isaiah 50, verse 4, 
It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as a learned. God has a word every day to speak. And as you are filled up as a learner, as a disciple, your cup is to splash on the weary throughout the day. A unique word in season. It's like, wow. How did you know? How could you have known that? I didn't. God spoke to me and now God is speaking to you. Almost every service, somebody will come up and and say, man, I knew my wife talked to you because you said blah, blah. I knew my husband said something. You know, it's like, there's no way possible. I knew that. It's just the Lord. I, I remember one time I just, off the top of my head, I said, you know, it's like if your wife goes over to JCPenney's here and buys a $30 dress and you get upset because, you know, and I had this guy ready to punch me out going, my wife told you that she went over to Penny's and bought a dress for $30 and I was all upset about it and you're trying to, you know, condemn me. I was like, I had no idea your wife went to Penny's. I had no idea she bought a dress. I had, that's just God speaking to you and uh, you deal with Penny's and the dress, but uh, don't get mad at me. But I, I do know the Lord has a word to you. And I also know the Lord has a word to share with others. And this is what he tells John. And in verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. The voice probably wasn't familiar, but the spirit of Jesus was. Now here's John. You got to remember the last time he saw Jesus, 33 AD. He raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And now here is John in 95 AD, 96 AD. Over 60 years later, turning to see a very familiar face, a very familiar spirit, a very familiar friend. And as he turns, what does he see? And as I turned, I saw what? Seven gold lampstands. We're going to cheat. Look down to verse 20. He says there, the seven lampstands which you saw are what? The seven churches. It's the seven churches. He heard the voice, and he turned to see the voice, and what did he see? The churches. Guys, do you understand that we, as the body of Christ, the church, are the representation of Christ? He is the head. We're the hands. We're the feet. When the world wants to see Jesus, come to church. It's us. Who are we? The lamp. We're the city set on a hill that can't be hidden. We're the light to to shine the way. We're the beacon that says, you want to know Jesus, come to us. The Bible says, as the world looks at your love for one another, they would know that you're his disciples. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's the whole concept. I turned to hear the voice. Where was the voice coming from? Church. That's where the Lord wants to speak. You have all these kind of cults say, oh, it's this guru in India, or it's this guy over in this house, or it's this little book here, or that little magazine there. You got to come to our little... That's not where God's speaking. Where the Lord's speaking is just obviously up front. It's in the church. God's speaking right from the midst of the church. Notice there, it says that. So in the midst, in verse 13, in the midst of the seven lampstands was one like who? The Son of Man. Now, we saw earlier, it was the Son of God. Again, the Son of. Remember, Jesus said to James and John, Oh, you guys are sons of thunder. 
because they were all fired up, wanting to call fire to heaven. When sons of, it means your nature of. And so when Jesus is called the Son of God, He indeed is. His nature is God. Philip, you've seen me. You've seen the Father. You've seen the nature of God. But then when He says the Son of Man, what's that referring to? In Hebrews chapters 2 and 4, He says that in every way He suffered, every way He was tried, every way He struggled, every way He was tempted. Why? So we now, while upon this earth, can go to our faithful high priest, Jesus Christ, who will help us in our time of need. In 1 Timothy 2, it says we have one mediator between God and man. What? The man, Christ Jesus. And so Jesus, as a man, understands and empathizes with us. So Christ, he turns to see Jesus, and what does he see? He sees the church. That's what we see in seeing Jesus. We see the body of Christ. And then Jesus is in the midst. How? I mean, it would have made sense to me. I heard the voice and I turned and there I saw heaven. And there I saw Jesus upon the throne. And there from the throne with a thunderous voice, he spoke to me. That would make sense to me. But he didn't say that. I turned and I saw to my surprise the church. And at church, I saw Jesus at church. As the Son of Man, He was there at church. Jesus, guys, is in to church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ, what? Loved the church. How much did He love the church? He gave Himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. He might present her to himself a glorious church, not any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Guys, Christ loves the church. Spots and blemishes and wrinkles and all. It's his bride. And I love the fact he hasn't left us as we are. He's working on us. He's getting us to the point till we'll be without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle, that we will be the bride in her beautiful, flowing, white wedding dress coming down the aisle to her husband, Jesus. God's getting in in that place. But right now, warts and all, he loves us. (laughs) Even though we have a lot of spots and blemishes, don't we? We're not the perfect bride as the Lord desires, but he loves us anyway. He gave himself for us anyway. He loves the church. And because he loves the church, that's where he's at. In Matthew 18, he says, hey, when you guys get together, I'm in the midst of you. And it's powerful. You can ask anything you will in my name and I will do it. Whatever you bind on earth will bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He says, if there are any sick, do what? Go to church. (laughs) Call the elders of the church together. How can you do that unless you're so familiar with the church, you know who the elders are to call them? Every time we see a picture of a church, it's not somebody who's at a distant, not really understanding, sort of observing from afar. It's people who are in the midst of it. Where was Christ? In the midst of the church. He wasn't standing away looking at the church. He was in the middle of the church. Where should you be? The same place. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, it says, As we all come together, every part's doing its share. 
every ligament, every muscle connected, causes the growth of the body of Christ in love. When are you going to really grow? When are you going to really cause others to grow? When are we really going to be the light, the candlestick that we're to be? It's when we focus upon the Lord and seek Him first and then take His priority. Christ's priority is fellowship with you. Absolutely. But Christ's priority is also the church. To be at church, to be connected in the church, to be in the midst of the church, to be a part of one another. And I can't encourage you enough to get connected, whether it's teaching Sunday school or ushering or going with a group down to the orphanage or being in a home Bible study. There's a million and one ways to do it here because it's so important. And there in the midst of the church, the Son of Man, and notice he was girded about the chest with a gold band. I don't have time to go into detail on this, but look it up in the book of Exodus. When they were building the tabernacle and all the articles and the clothing of the priest, he said, make it exactly. Don't deviate from the details I'm giving you. We find out later because it's all a replica of what that which was in heaven. And now we see Jesus in the priestly garment. Not just a strand as the priest had, but a big, giant, solid gold band. Christ, our priest, the Son of Man, in the midst of the church, ever lives to make intercessions for us, ever active in our midst to heal, to speak, to bind, to loose, to bless us. And in verse 14, His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and His eyes like a flame of fire. Now, again, we've talked about when you look at any work of literature, there's different types of literature. And here, now we're going into poetry. I've seen people try to take and use this description of Jesus and draw a picture of it, and it's scary looking. Got a sword coming out of his mouth and fire out of his eyes, and, you know, he's got this electrified white hair sticking up, and it's like, ah, you know. It's poetry, guys. It's not meant to be literal. As a matter of fact, We don't have a literal description of the Lord, and I think it's meant to be that way. We only have a couple. One's found in Matthew 11. Jesus makes it of himself. For lowly, I am low, I'm lowly and gentle of heart, and in my presence you'll find rest for your soul. The other description we have is in Isaiah 58 that says he's comely, which is a nice way of saying he's on the ugly side, that men would be drawn unto him. That's the only description we have. And here we we can break this down. When it talks about him being white, notice how white. It's white as snow. Oh, there it is. He was white. Guys, if you are white as snow, guess what? You are dead. Okay? So he's not giving a skin color here. Matter of fact, I don't think there's really anybody that's black as pure black or white, pure white. We're all somewhere in between. We're all some kind of shade between white and black, some kind of tan brown color. And the Bible says the life is in the blood. And if you need blood, it doesn't matter what nationality, it doesn't matter what color of skin, it just matters the blood type. And here the Lord comes, and we see his head and his hair white. What's that signifying? As you study through the scriptures, White or the gray head is a symbol of wisdom. And with Christ, it's just wisdom coming out of him so abundantly. And the Proverbs, it says, 
Wisdom is in the streets shouting, screaming to the simple ones, come unto me and find wisdom. That's where we find wisdom is in the Lord. He's the one who's the lamp unto our feet and the light into our path. It's as we hide his word and he is the word in our hearts that we don't sin against him. And there's a purity about him as white as snow. In the transfiguration, when they tried to describe him, it says his face shone as white as the sun. And then the other description, it says, and, he, and he, his clothes were as white, whiter than any launderer on earth can get it. So it's not even a white. It's a, a shining light that's coming forth. And his eyes like a flame of fire, saying what? That he's piercing right through. That he's not looking at you for what you say you are or what you want others to believe you are. But Christ can see right through it all. And he, he's piercing through, looking right into the very thoughts and intents of your heart and, and your mind. He knows all He sees it all. He understands it all. And then it goes on to say in verse 15, and his feet are like fine brass. Brass is the metal of judgment. Exodus 27, amongst other places, it's the metal of judgment. And they're on fire like they just came out of a fire. The metal's burning. And as we go on to study Revelation, we're going to see the Lord's finally coming to judge and to judge the world. And as he comes in this judgment, his voice as the judge is like the sound of many waters. I don't know if you've ever been the base of a waterfall where the water's coming down. You can scream into the ear of the person next to you and they can't hear you. The waterfall fills every single wave of sound and it permeates. And when God comes to judge, there's only one voice that'll be heard and it's his. The Bible tells in Romans 1, no man will have an excuse before him, even because of creation. It's such a giant arrow that there is a God and what his nature is like. And you would be able to look at the nature of creation and the nature of God and know who the true and living God is. And there's only going to be one voice heard. There's not going to be a vote. There's not going to be a jury. There's one vote. It's Jesus. There's one jury. It's Jesus. And he, all judgment's been given unto him. And his voice is like that of many waters. And in verse 16, and he had in his right hand the seven stars, again down in verse 20, They're the seven angels, the angels that are sent out to the church. Isn't that great? There's angels here from God this morning to to minister our church. In Hebrews, it says, greet everybody, because you may be greeting an angel unaware. So don't be rude to anybody on the way out. You may be talking to an angel. And uh, then also, he says, and out of his mouth went a two-edged sword. It tells us in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That two-edged sword's going through and piercing right through the heart of the matter. Sharper, sharp on every side is the word of God. Not to slay, but to heal, like a scaffold in the hands of a doctor operating. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. A very bright guy, Um, just shining with his incredible, splendid glory. In verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Sensory overload here, man. He was overwhelmed when he saw the Lord in his glory. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, although we once knew Christ, according to the flesh, we know him no longer. And boy, did John experience that in a powerful way. Moses, who had such a wonderful relationship with the Lord, said, Lord, I want to see you face to face. 
And I, in Exodus 33, 20, he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. John lived. He fell down as a dead man, but he didn't die. So guess what? He still didn't see the Lord. He saw a revelation, but he was still looking through a mirror dimly at the revelation. Look at how awesome this is, guys. When I read the Gospels, I fall in love with Jesus. He's so wise. He's so full of love. He's such a servant. He's so caring. And when I look at this description, I'm in awe, and I just can't wait to see him. And I realize I'm seeing a speck of sand of his glory. Remember, they asked John, John, what's it going to be like when we're in heaven? He's like, man, I have no idea. But I know that when we see him as he is, we will be like him. This is awesome. But it doesn't even begin to tell the story of how awesome Jesus is going to be and how awesome heaven is going to be. And just a little tiny speck of the passing of God's glory. There, John, he's just undone. He falls down like a dead man. I can't take any more. Imagine in our brand new bodies, what is heaven going to be like? What's it going to be like to see the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end? What's it like going to be to see Jesus face to face? Wow. I can't even imagine it. But he laid his hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Wow. If you know the story of the transfiguration, Jesus is there in glory, Moses and Elijah. Peter speaks up and says, hey, let's make some tabernacles and just stay like this. And the father speaks, this is my son, listen to him. And they all sort of in the same state fall down as dead men. They're overwhelmed. And what happens next? Jesus comes and touches each of them. And they all get up. Outrageous sight. But it's the same loving touch of Jesus. Once again, after another radical revelation of Jesus, the second time, John was a young, youthful man. The last time, now he's a very old, ancient man. But yet our Lord, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, comes with the same loving touch and says, hey, it's an awesome sight to see the living hand. It says in Hebrews, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And boy, here's John, who's right with God. But still, it's an awesome thing to realize who God is and to be in his presence. It's me. I'm the first and I'm the last. And in verse 18, I am he who lives, who was dead, and I'm alive forevermore. So I am the resurrected Jesus that you're very familiar with, John. It's me. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. I love this. John, it's me. It's the resurrected Jesus that you're very familiar with. The amen, the final one, the one who has the final statement. And guess what I have with me? The keys of Haiti and death. Now, some people twistedly try to read this going, all right, I'm going to lock everybody up. I'm the sheriff in town. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the opposite. Who's ever in bondage, I'm here to set them free. It tells us in Peter and in Ephesians 4, when Jesus died, that he went down into Hades and he set people free after preaching three days to them. He set them free. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, I was pushed above measure, beyond strength, despairing of life itself. I had the sentence of death 
within me. But you know what I learned? (laughs) Paul says, Christ has the keys. Whatever hell you may be in today, maybe Satan, that wicked one, has lured you into his trap. He's out to kill, still and destroy. Christ has the keys to set you free. Maybe through your foolishness, you've put yourself in that place. Christ has the keys. Maybe you've exhausted yourself emotionally, physically. You're at the end of yourself. Maybe you're even thinking about suicide. Guys, Christ is here. He has the keys. Why do you think he died? That he might raise again to set you free. He rose again for you. He rose again that you would have life. And so he's here to let you free. And I love what he says. I am he. Remember Moses said, who shall I say sent me? He said, go tell him I am. I am what? I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I am what you needed when you first came to me. I am what you need in the middle of your pilgrimage. I am what you need when you breathe your last. I am what you need on this earth. I am what you need for all of eternity. I am what you need for your marriage. I'm what you need to be as a parent or as a child. I am what you need at work. I am what you need when you rise in the morning. I am whatever you need me to be all the time. I can do all things through what? Christ who strengthens me. Why? Because he is the great I am. And in verse 19, he finishes up here, write the things which you've seen. Tells him again. Matter of fact, he's going to tell him 11 more times in this book. Write it down. The things which are, the things which will take place after this. So things you've seen, chapter 1. Things that are, chapters 2 and 3, about the churches, we're going to see that. And then things that will take place, chapters 4 to 22. And then in verse 20, he says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And so here he lets us know the insight into this heavenly scene. That the Lord from his right hand has dispatched the angels to strengthen us. It tells us in Hebrews that they're, they're created to minister unto us. Isn't that radical? We see pictures of that all the way through the Bible. Jesus there, when he was after tempted by Satan, exhausted, starving to death, angels ministered to him. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was so overwhelmed, his blood vessels began to break. It says angels came and they ministered unto him. When Lot needed to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels are there dragging him and his family on out of there. I'm so glad that God has his, these particular creatures made just for us to minister to us, to help us. To, he's not left us alone. And where are they going to? Where are the angels going to? Church. <laughs> the angels go to church. If angels go to church, if Jesus goes to church, you know what that means? Yeah, you need to go to church. It says in Hebrews 10, do not forsake the gathering together of other brethren, especially as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. Guys, it's great you're here this morning. But unless you have an overwhelmingly clear word from God, thou shalt not go to church Sunday night, come back. 
You need it. We need it. You need each other to grow and to mature and to pray. Paul tells Timothy, first of all in the church, prayers, supplications, intercessions be made. As a church family, that's the night we've chosen to get together Sunday night. Come and pray. The Lord's going to be here, and whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven, loose on earth, loose in heaven. We are the answer for the lost and dying world around us that's lost its way. We are the lighthouse, guys. Everybody's shipwrecking all around us. They're looking at the light of MTV and crashing into the rocks. They're looking at the, the light of all the latest morality, whatever that might be, the situation, ethics, and they're drowning in the midst of the, the sea. We are the lighthouse. It's us. And let me tell you something. God hears our prayers and he answers them. And God wants to minister to you and then from you to be a radical minister to the world around us. And God has something to say to the churches and we need to hear it. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word here today. And we do know there are some who've come just as you have said, who need you to be the great I am for them today. As every head is bowed right now, and I close, there's some of you here today right now that have never submitted yourself to Jesus as the Lord of your life. You've never come to the place to say, I'm a sinner in Christ. I need you in my life. And I never knew there was such a Savior. You're here today saying, man, I'm so weighed down by the guilt of my sin. I want my sin taken away. I want it gone. I want that burden lifted for good. I want my name written in the book of life. I want to know at the thought, if Christ were to come right now, woohoo, I'm happy, I'm joyful, and I'd be going to heaven to be with him. If you can't say that for 100% certain, don't leave this building without that certainty. There's only one thing to keep you from it, and that's your pride. Jesus said, if you're unwilling to proclaim me before men, I'm unwilling to proclaim you before my Father and all his holy angels. Are you willing to say, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm a sinner and I want to be made right with Christ today. If that's you, just lift your hand right now. I want to pray for you. Say, that's me. I'm a sinner. I want my sins taken away. God bless you. Is there any others? Yes. I want my name written in the book of life. I want to know that I'm going to heaven. There's many, many of you who lifted your hand. Just keep them up. Just for a couple of seconds here. It's me. I want to be made right with God. There's others of you right now saying, man, I've so gone away from the Lord. Even last night, I was just sending my head off. I'm not where I need to be. I'm the prodigal son. I need to come home. If that's you today, just lift your hand right now. I, I need to come home. I need to rededicate my life. I need a new start. I need a point in time to say, God, I confess my sins. I want to be healed. I want to get started afresh. All of you right now who lifted your hands, there's many of you, just stand up right where you're at right now. I want to pray for you. Just stand up. Don't care what anybody else thinks. There's many of you here today. Thank you, Lord, for touching these hearts. And there's others of you right now that also need to make the same bold statement. Don't care what your friends or your classmates or people from school or whatever. Don't care what anybody else thinks. I only care right now what the Lord thinks. Don't leave here without 100% everything being right in your relationship with the Lord. Is there any others? You who 
are standing right now, I'd like you just to make your way out and come stand right here in the front. I'm going to pray with you and encourage you. Just make your way right now, if you would. Just step on out. Let them on out, guys. Thank you, Lord, for touching these hearts here right now. Thank you, Lord. There's others right now. Make your way right now. Make your way right now. Let's all stand together. If you need to make this walk, make it right now. Get up right now. Join these here. Made that same walk. Thank you, Lord. Yes, Lord. Touching his heart. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, you see every heart here. Lord, you see every mind. God, you know exactly what's taking place. There's here right now saying the most important thing is to be right with their maker. Heal them, Lord. Restore them. And some of you might be here right now going, I don't really know how to pray. And I know I was in that place years back. And somebody led me in a prayer, and I was so appreciative. And I'm going to pray a prayer. It's not a special prayer. Just let God look at the attitude of your heart as you pray it. And he'll receive you to himself. He'll write your name in the book of life. And you can begin a wonderful fellowship with him. And let's all as a church family pray together to make these here feel comfortable at home. Dear Heavenly Father, I know that you love me, that you sent your Son to die for me, to take all my sin upon himself, and then to rise again from the dead, that his blood would take away all my sin. Take it away now. I'm a sinner. I confess that. But I know you're the healer. Heal me, Lord. Wash me as white as snow. I give my life to you. Thank you for writing my name in the book of life. Now give me a hunger to know you more. Give me a hunger for your word. Give me a thirst for prayer. Make me your child who follows you always. In Jesus' precious name. And Lord, bless everyone who heard your word today in truth. Let it be that living word of God speaking to them as they leave here throughout the week as they continue to chew upon it and meet us powerfully again tonight, Lord. In your word we ask, in Jesus' precious name. Everyone said, amen. Amen. We need a lot more elders and their wives down here quickly if you'd come. Hey, before you head out, meet somebody you don't know and ask one thing you can pray for them throughout the week. Get their name, get a prayer request, meet somebody around you, and then do it all week long. God bless you. encourage you to come back tonight. And have a great week in the Lord. Bye-bye.